If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. It's a wonderful psalm in the very beginning of book three of the Psalter. If you're not familiar with the way the Psalter is broken up, it's broken up into five books. And book three is the the central uh, book. And it's also a book that is very dark in many ways. This is where we find Psalm 77, Psalm 88, where the psalmist is really wrestling with the Lord and uh, seeing what is happening around him, especially with the destruction of Jerusalem. We read about those in some of those psalms. But this morning we're going to be considering together Psalm 73. And it's on page 574 in your pew Bibles. So Psalm 73, beginning at verse 1, Brothers and sisters, this is God's. Holy Word. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thanks be to God for his word. By way of introduction this morning, I want to think about another book of the Bible. Many of you, I am sure, are familiar with the book of Job. 
Now, in many ways, Job is a very interesting book. It's also a book that is somewhat unfamiliar to us in some ways. But also, the book of Job is a book that we often go to, or at least we think about, in times of trial, struggle, hardship. Because we know there in the book of Job, there is an example of somebody who is enduring much pain, physical, spiritual, emotional pain. In the first three chapters of that book, we read about what happened. First, what happened in the divine counsel of God? What happened to Job as a result of the Lord allowing Satan to afflict him? And we also have in chapter 3, Job's lament, where he pours out his heart before his God. But then we also know that Job has those three friends come and meet him. And in chapters 4 through 26, it records three cycles of discourses between Job and those three friends. And those speeches of the friends, those things that they talk to Job about, they're not innocent. They're actually motivated by Satan himself. As he is using the three friends to drive a wedge between Job and his God. To try to get Job to curse God to his face. But who is supporting Job through all this? We know that the Lord God is supporting Job in the midst of this challenge. In the midst of the enemy facing Job, God is sustaining him. And what were the friends saying to Job? Job, you have sinned, and we know that because we see what happened to you. God punishes sin. We can see it. All that you have experienced is proof of what we're saying. But in chapter 21, Job completely tears down the arguments of the friends. Job takes a step back, as it were, and he says, wait a second, that's not how things work. Have you actually looked around for the friends? Have you looked around? The wicked are flourishing. The wicked are prospering. There isn't this immediate judgment that you are saying will happen to those who are wicked. Brothers and sisters, we too can struggle as we see the world around us getting more and more wicked, but yet in many ways seems to be thriving when we're struggling in so many areas. That's where Psalm 73 fits so well, not only with where Job is at, but also especially where we are in our own wilderness journeys. And what was Job's primary struggle? He thought God was far away from him. The friends had come near, but they weren't being helpful. In fact, they were trying to drive Job farther and farther away from his God. But we know the underlying story of the book of Job. We know that God was actually very near to Job. Was sustaining him, was keeping him in the fight. So the question we are confronted with this morning is, To whom are our hearts drawn? Do we want to be near the wicked? Or do we want to be near the Lord? That's the struggle of Asaph in Psalm 73. He's recounting a time when, in fact, he was being drawn towards the wicked. And when you're being drawn towards the wicked, you're actually going farther and farther away from the Lord. You can't have it both ways. So he recounts this time when he was looking towards the wicked, drawing near to them seemingly going farther and farther away from his God. Maybe some of you have been there. 
Maybe some of you are there even this morning. You're struggling. You see yourself moving away from the Lord, being drawn in by the wicked around you. So this morning, let's think about Psalm 73. We're going to do so in three points. First, desiring the wicked. Second, discerning the wicked's end. And finally, delighting in the Lord. And I'll say those again for the children's notes. Desiring the wicked, discerning the wicked's end, and finally, delighting in the Lord. And may you, brothers and sisters, may you draw near and close to your God. And may you do so, first of all, in praise for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. So first, let's think about our first point, desiring the wicked. And the psalmist Asaph, he begins this psalm with, in some ways, an introduction in the first two verses. He knows that God is truly good to his people, to those that are pure in heart. There was a time in Asaph's life where that did not characterize him. He was stumbling. He was slipping. He was falling farther and farther away from his God. And if we're honest, this is a beautiful introduction, isn't it? It really draws us into this psalm because we can identify with the psalmist, I've been there. I too have felt myself falling away from the Lord. I know he's good to his people. I know he is good to those who are pure in heart. But I was on the verge of slippery. I wonder what was causing Asaph to slip away. Well, we're ready now for the rest of the psalm, aren't we? He's drawn us in. We can identify with the psalmist if we're honest with ourselves. And in verses 3 through 16, we have those familiar words describing how the psalmist saw the wicked. Looking through his eyes at the world around him, he was tempting him. He was drawing him nearer and nearer. In verse 3, the psalmist says he was envious or he was jealous of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. But it's important that we consider exactly what the psalmist is saying here in verse 3. The word that Asaph uses for arrogant, it means one who takes the praise for himself. Whenever this word is used elsewhere in the Bible, it is used of those who are willingly and defiantly rejecting the Lord. Wicked arrogance. Rejecting the Lord willingly, defiantly. They're the arrogant. But where does your mind go when you hear that word prosperous? Or the prosperity of the wicked? Well, your mind probably goes to something that speaks of wealth. Big houses. Good cars. Many, many cars. Things like that. But that's not necessarily what the psalmist is describing here in our text. He's going to get to that point later down the road, but what the psalmist is thinking about is something far more important. In fact, it's something far more covenantal. What was God's promise for the people in the land? That they would have peace. And you're probably familiar with the Hebrew word shalom. It means a state of peace, a a state of well-being. Listen to Leviticus 26.6. I will give peace, shalom, in the land. And you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land. The sword shall not go through your land. That's what God's promise of peace looked like. 
You don't even have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of enemies coming in. You don't have to be afraid of animals, scary animals coming into the land. True, complete peace, shalom, will be in the land. Now listen to what the psalmist literally says in verse 3. When I saw the shalom of the wicked. That's the actual Hebrew word that he uses there, translated prosperity in the ESV. It's shalom. Believing that God is going to give shalom. So why did the psalmist feel that his feet were almost slipping? Ultimately, it was because he thought God was lying to him. This shalom that God is promising, it isn't going to come from God. It's going to come from some other means. The shalom isn't going to come from the Lord. His promises are false. In the midst of the darkness, suffering, and grief, have you felt the same way? That the shalom that God promises isn't going to come. God is lying to you. All his promises are false. The psalmist is looking around and he sees the peace and shalom being found and experienced by the wicked, the arrogant, those who are far from God. Verses 4 and 5, the psalmist is looking at what the wicked have. And they don't have any pangs, essentially what it means. They're not in any torment. They don't have any pain. They have good strength. They aren't in trouble. They're not plagued with any hardship. They have shalom. They have peace. That's what the psalmist was seeing in the wicked. That was supposed to belong to God's people. Not the wicked. Not the arrogant. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. These are the blessings that are going to come to God's people, those who are obedient to him. God's going to bring shalom to the land, shalom to his people. What were the wicked supposed to have? Anti-shalom. They were supposed to be in trouble. They were to not have peace. They were to be cursed by God. They were to be afraid. They were to have the wild beasts come. They would have enemies that would come and pillage and plunder. Their harvest would be poor. Their bodies would be plagued with illness. From the psalmist's point of view, did it appear that God was being truthful? Did it appear that God was being faithful to his covenant? Not really. The psalmist was in torment, trying to be faithful to the Lord, but the wicked could care less about God, could care less about his law and his word. They were living in peace and prosperity. They were having shalom. And again, perhaps you are struggling with the very same things. When you look around yourself and externally, your life is a mess compared to others. The psalmist continues in verses 6 to 12 to continue to describe the wicked. He talks about their pride serving as a necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. What the psalmist is seeing is that their wickedness is on full display. They're not trying to hide anything. They're wearing their pride as a necklace. This violence is covering them as a garment. They had no shame in what they were doing. Remember, they're described as being arrogant. And that's what they're doing. But they also had no shame in what they were saying either. We read that in verses 8 through 11. Just a few moments, uh, for a moment, I want to pick up on a few particular phrases. In verse 9, they set their mouths against the heaven. In other words, they were speaking against the Lord. 
And if we combine that with verse 11, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? We can hear the words of the wicked as they were denying God, right? They're crying out against Him. They're essentially shaking their fist at God. God doesn't know anything. That's what they were saying to God. He doesn't know anything. Verse 9, the next phrase. Their tongue struts through the earth. Essentially what this means is the wicked were getting a wide audience. Their lofty speech against God, people were gathering around to hear it. Listening to what they say. I find it interesting that nothing's changed today, has it? Nothing's changed. How easy is it to go into a public setting and speak against God? To speak against Christ? To speak for wickedness? And you're going to gain a wide audience. People are going to cheer you. But what if you went and spoke for God, for Christ, and speak against wickedness? Both are fully religious speeches. Speak against God or for God, it's a religious speech. But speaking against the heavens, you're going to be celebrated. You're going to be applauded by the world. Speaking for God, speaking against wickedness, well, you're ignorant, you're bigoted. They'll shut you up. Nothing's changed. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But what should surprise us, what should very much discourage us is verse 10. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. This is a difficult verse to translate, but what is being communicated is that God's people are being won over by the speech of the wicked. They're being won over. And worse, they're joining them. The Hebrew literally says to drink their drink to the dregs. To take what they're giving you and take it full stop. Take it all. Verse 10 is a very sad picture. The pride, the arrogance of the wicked, they're speaking against Yahweh and it's causing Yahweh's covenant people to join in. To find no fault with the wicked to deny that God actually knows anything. So what are God's covenant people saying? What I used to believe, that's false. What God has said in the Bible, it's not applicable to an enlightened mind today. I've, I've heard the truth. This new speech is true. God's speech is false. Unfortunately, all of us have seen this happen, haven't we? Those who claim to be Christians, even publicly profess their faith before the elders, before God and witnesses. After hearing, after hearing those who set their mouths against the heavens, they join with them. Find no fault in them. Raise their glasses together and join them in their lofty and wicked speech. We see this as parents are being compromised by their children's sin. Institutions being compromised by donors and constituents. Churches being compromised by false teaching. Churches celebrating wickedness and sin. These verses of Psalm 73 continue to play out, don't they? They've been playing out for hundreds of years. When this happens, who are the ones that are in pain? Who are the ones that are oppressed? It's those who remain faithful to the Lord and to His Word. 
And that's exactly what the psalmist was experiencing in verses 13 to 15. His life was a mess. He was not experiencing the blessings. He was not experiencing the shalom of the Lord. He was trying to be obedient. At the end of verse 14, the psalmist says he is chastened or rebuked every morning. How annoying would that be? Every single morning, first thing, you're rebuked for being faithful to the Lord. Every morning. Rebuked. The psalmist is watching his words. He didn't want to say anything that would be blasphemous against God, against his word. He didn't want to betray and lead astray the next generation of God's children. He was trying to be strong. But he saw himself slipping and falling. But as he was trying to process all of this, as he was trying to understand all that is going on, the shalom, the peace of the wicked, the upheaval in his own life, the ease and health of the wicked, he was stricken, he was plagued. All this was painful. All this was a wearisome task for him. And again, we too get to that point as well, don't we? We know intellectually that God is in control of all things. We know, we confess that God loves us, He cares for us. We read those passages in the Bible and even in our confessions and catechisms. But we don't see it. We're not experiencing it. In fact, we're experiencing the opposite. Extreme pain. Extreme heartache. Yeah, we know Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, the things that are revealed belong to us. We know that. We know his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We know that God doesn't need us to be his counselor, but still, it's painful. It's painful to think about. It's horrible to go through. And that brings us to our second point. Desiring the wicked's end. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the struggle of his life, as the psalmist was trying to understand all that is going on, where does the psalmist go? Verse 17 says he goes into the sanctuary of God. He goes to church. He drew near to the Lord. Again, I ask you a question. Can you say the same thing? In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your struggles in this life, when you're standing at a place where your feet are almost slipping and you're struggling, do you think about going to church? Do you think about drawing near to the Lord? There are many times when pastors and the elders are concerned about the spiritual well-being of a brother or sister. What's one of the first things that somebody does when they're struggling spiritually? They stop going to church regularly. And then they stop going to church at all. Instead of drawing near to the Lord, they go farther and farther away. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what our enemy wants us to do. That's what Satan wants us to do, is to draw near to him and draw farther and farther away from the Lord. Children, when you're hungry, and you see a table of food, do you go towards the table or do you go away from it? You're going to go towards it. You've got to go all the way up so you can reach the food and put it in your mouth. You've got to draw near to it. You can't put it in your mouth if you can't reach it. When we have concerns about our brother or sister, the elders and the ministers try to be shepherds to bring them closer, 
to bring that near to the Lord. And we do that as congregations as well, right? We try to bring people closer to the Lord, come alongside them, enter into their trial, enter into their suffering, pray for them, always pointing them to our good God. Point us to his promises. On many occasions, I've used the words of our communion form with sheep that are struggling. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table. For it has been given to us because of our weakness, because of our failures, in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Christ. There in our communion form, it calls us, draw near to the Lord. Put your weaknesses, put your failures behind you. Draw near to the Lord. Come to Him. The Lord is spreading a table. Come near it. Don't go away. So the psalmist, by God's grace, is drawing near to the Lord. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his torment, he goes into God's sanctuary. And what happened? Look at the second part to verse 17. That I discerned their end. Verses 18 and 20 go on to describe what that end for the wicked looks like. But how did the psalmist all of a sudden come to this understanding? He was weary, he was in pain, he was struggling how to understand this, and all in a moment he understood. What's going on here? What gave him this understanding? Well, in order to answer this question, we need to think about where the psalmist Asaph went. We're not exactly sure when Asaph wrote this psalm, but most likely he went into the temple of God. And if, as he did so, what would he have seen in the temple? Often when we think about the temple of God, we think of this glorious temple of Solomon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Very beautiful, cedar wood, beautiful tapestries, gold is everywhere, other beautiful things. It's all true. But if you were to walk into the temple gate, one of the first things you would have seen would be blood, entrails, dead animals, all over the place. Sacrifices burning on the altar. That's the scene walking into the temple. And what did the psalmist understand when he saw that? Oh, that's going to happen to the wicked. That's going to happen to the wicked. They're going to be destroyed. Their blood is going to be spilt. They're going to be consumed by the fires of God's judgment. How do the animals look outside the temple? What did God require of the sacrifices? Fat, healthy animals, without blemish. Perfect specimens. In many ways, they look like the wicked that Asaph was envious of, don't they? They weren't in pain. They weren't disfigured. They weren't hungry. They were fat. They were healthy animals. At the end of the day, what did they look like? They were a pile of ashes. That's all that was left of them. Perfect specimens, a few hours later, utterly destroyed. And the psalmist realized that the very same thing was going to happen to the wicked. Yeah, one day they look healthy, they look fat. The next day, utterly consumed. Utterly consumed. 
as verse 20 says, are like a dream that vanishes as soon as you awake. They're gone. Brothers and sisters, that's still true. That's still true. Even though we don't have sacrifices no longer to show us that vivid picture, we have it revealed to us in God's Word. And it tells us throughout the destruction of the wicked. Their end is going to be destruction. Destroy. God's Word also tells us about the end of His people. Our end isn't destruction. Our end is shalom. True shalom. Not just for a a small time in a little strip of land in the Middle East. No. For all of eternity. For all of eternity. And how do we get that peace? Somebody was destroyed. Jesus Christ. He was destroyed in our place. So we can have peace with God. For eternity. And brothers and sisters, that's what you should understand by coming into the sanctuary of God every single Lord's Day, even today. We need to be reminded of the end of the wicked is destruction, but the end of God's people is everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ, through His perfect and finished work. He was innocent. He was perfect. He was God's Son. But He was destroyed for us. We need to recognize that. This is a message that is proclaimed by ministers and ambassadors of God's word. Throughout the globe, we pray that that is being proclaimed. But even now in the new covenant, after the final sacrifice of Christ, it doesn't mean that God hasn't given us anything visible. We have the waters of baptism, which the Lord will be seeing in a few weeks. We have the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the bread and wine of the elements of the Lord's Supper, which will be taken next week. We have these pictures of showing us what God has done for us and redeeming us through Jesus Christ. We have those pictures. And brothers and sisters, when we arrive in God's house on the Lord's Day, we come from a week where perhaps we've seen the apparent peace, the prosperity of the wicked. Maybe we were close to slipping and raising our glasses with the wicked. But God draws us in. As Reverend Chambers Reminded us this morning, God calls us to come into his house. And we're here. And may the Spirit work in our heart. As we think about God's laws, we think about the preaching of the gospel. May we be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ. May we be reminded that the way of the wicked, it's foolish. It leads to destruction. It leads to eternal pain, eternal torment. Anti-shalom. And as God works that in us, may he also give us a delight to be with him. May we delight in God, our Lord. And that brings us to our final point. Delighting in the Lord. Initially, the psalmist says he comes and he sees the destruction of the wicked. He understands their end. He needs to confess his sins. He needs to recognize this is what he repents of his sin and he confesses them to the Lord. So he does in verses 21 and 22. He has godly sorrow for his sins. Lord, I was foolish. I was ignorant. I acted like a beast before you. But we need to recognize the psalmist doesn't just remain there. He doesn't just remain wallowing in his sin. He knows when God forgives. It's as far as the east is from the west, right? He understands there's no condemnation for those who are in the Lord. No condemnation. 
So he draws near to the Lord. And that's really what the end of the psalm expresses. Because everything changes when we are near the Lord. Everything changes. He holds us. He guides us. He counsels us. He's our strength. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Earlier in this psalm, the wicked were setting their mouths against the heavens. They were walking throughout the earth, seemingly desiring everything, being desired by everyone. But now for the psalmist, he knows who's in heaven. None of those earthly accolades appeal to him. The psalmist finds his strength and his portion in the Lord. And nothing else. His heart's been changed, hasn't it? Can you say, this, can you say these words of the psalmist? Is it in the Lord that is your delight? Is it in the Lord that you go to find counsel and guidance? Is it in the Lord where you find peace? Shalom. If it's not, as a minister of the gospel, I need to tell you all other paths lead to destruction. All other paths mean that you are being deceived by your enemy. Listen to these words from James chapter 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we want to be friends with the world, if we want to raise our glass and to drink it to the dregs with them, as the psalmist was tempted to do, we can't also be friends with God. Of course, we're called to be friends, to love our neighbor, to be friendly towards them. But to be friends with the world in this sense is to become like them, to take on their view of the world, to applaud what they applaud, to curse what they curse, to dream and desire is the same as them. That's not what God calls us to do. That's not loving our neighbor. That's loving our enemy, Satan. We're pilgrims, we're sojourners, we're exiles in this present evil age. Yeah, we're going to have troubles, we're going to have hardships. We're going to have things that aren't shalom. Yet we live in a way we can seek the welfare of the city we live in. This is Jeremiah told the exiles in Babylon. But we know that all these things, as Psalm 73 says, will be brought to destruction. They're going to be destroyed in a moment. We live in this world recognizing God has a different plan. New heavens, new earth. And James goes on to say in chapter 4, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. In the midst of all the temptations around us, all that the world is enticing us to follow after, we draw near to the Lord. We submit to Him. And what happens when we do that? Our enemy flees. Satan flees. He goes far away. And why does the devil flee when we draw near to the Lord? Because the enemy has no power. That's his biggest lie. His biggest lie is, I have power over you. No, he doesn't. If you're in Christ, he has no power. So he runs away. He flees. He has nothing that will keep God's will from being done. He knows his end is destruction. 
He knows that he'll be cast in the lake of fire to be destroyed. How does he know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Death, the curse that is over all of mankind, has been conquered. It's been conquered in Jesus Christ. And that is the wonderful good news of the gospel. The psalmist is trusting in the Lord is the same thing that we're trusting in. Salvation from our sin and misery. And the promise of God to bring us into his peace and glory for eternity. It's fitting to conclude this sermon with the conclusion of the psalm itself. Listen again to verses 23 to 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Those who are far from the Lord because of their unfaithfulness, they will perish. It may seem to our eyes now they're living in peace and prosperity, but it's a false peace. It's a false prosperity. It's not going to last. It will be destroyed. And we know this because God tells us this is so. We come to understand the end of the wicked because God has revealed it to us in his word. Their end is a result of God's law. They'll be condemned. Our end is a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our end. May the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ work in you to bring you to that understanding. That you know that your end will be in glory. With Christ. For all of eternity. And finally, brothers and sisters, we trust in the Lord our God. We trust in Him. We delight in Him. And we draw near to Him. We recognize it is good for us to draw near to the Lord our God. He's our Heavenly Father. We have the Good Shepherd at His right hand. And he has given us the life-giving Spirit. He draws us near to Him. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you this morning, Lord, as we wrestle with what we see around us, especially the wicked, seem to prosper, seem to have everything going well for them when we are struggling, sickness, illnesses, troubles at work, trouble in school, death of loved ones, whatever it is, Lord, when we struggle, Lord, may we recognize that the end of the wicked is destruction. And Lord, may we draw near to you as you draw near to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask, we pray that the ministry of the Wiser Lake Chapel, Lord, may continue to be a beacon of light in this dark world. To point people to Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. And Lord, those who do not know you, Lord, we pray that your Spirit will break down the hardness of their heart. Cause them, Lord, to see their sin. And to turn to Jesus Christ as our only Savior. To find true peace in Him. Lord, we ask this in your Son's most holy and precious name. Amen.